This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Hello, I'm James Denoss, and this is Unbound. Today, we continue our conversation with Bruce Meyer, author of the national bestseller, The Golden Thread, a reader's journey through the great books. He is also the author of more than 60 other books of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and literary journalism. If you missed part one of the interview, be sure to have a listen. At the end of that segment, we were exploring the Odyssey, Odysseus, and the nature of the hero. Here is the conclusion of that discussion. So tell us something about Homer and Hesiod. They were roughly the same period, right? You know that they had a singing match. That they were, yeah. it, was a, it was like a poetic competition, and Hesiod won. And um, it, it's, it's one of the great sort of travesties of history. It tells you that literary awards aren't all they're cracked up to be and everything like that. But um, um, the other thing about, about Homer, though, and this is, this is what I love about, about the Odyssey, it's all about product placement. Have you noticed this? That there are probably more Homeric epics, and Ovid talks about this in yeah. Metamorphosis. There are more Homeric epics than, epics than we actually have. Uh, Tennyson in his poem Ulysses yeah. is referring to um, uh, something called uh, the Telegony, mm. which is the further adventures of Odysseus. Yeah. After he, you know, he says, you know, the, basically says, you know, you know, I, I don't want to rest in old age, you know, and so forth, and you know, to strive Could, to couldn't adjo- to adjust a boring home life. No, <laughs> he he can't he can't adjust. So he says, you know, let's press on, let's go out and do it again, sort yeah. of thing. And um, my purpose holds to sail beyond the baths of all the western stars until I die. Maybe the, the waves will wash us down, and maybe we shall meet the brave. Um, um, oh, I forget who Achilles, who we knew. Yeah, you know, much is given, much abides. You know, and it, the whole point is that he's heading off on a further journey. There's a Telemachid, which is the first four books of the Odyssey. The there's uh, there's the there's an end missing from the Iliad. Um, that that it, the Iliad is oddly truncated at the end. Uh, but the question is, and Nestor says to, to Telemachus at one point, um, he says, uh, oh, I could tell you some great stories. And there's an Astoria that's missing. Oh. And, and if you take a look at Nestor's life as described by other sources, yeah. Nestor's life was mind-blowing. I yeah. mean, this was the guy who was involved with, with a Heracles um, on some of his labors, was, in fact, um, uh, someone who fought in all the different wars, you know, um, pre-Trojan War wars, and then was at the Troy, and then goes home, and he's this elder statesman with the great big two-handled cup, you know. And, of course, all of this was sung. It was the oral tradition. Oral. Now, the whole thing is, if you're, and this takes us into a platonic dialogue called the Ion, mm-hmm. I-O-N, that in the Ion, um, uh, that you've got a, a Plato encountering a character called Ion who is a rhapsode by trade. And a rhapsode is someone who is a professional singer because, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, even the um, original uh, Greek tragedies of Sophocles, they were all sung and they were performed as performance pieces. And, of course, in Book 8 of the Odyssey, you've got a description of an actual performance by Demodocus. Um, who's a blind singer, who's led in and they put the put his hand on the harp yes. on the wall and the cup yes. beside him and so <clears> forth. And he per- starts to sing about the Iliad. 
in order for a rhapsode to earn a living, he's got to advertise his other works. Uh, it's product placement, you know. So essentially, he's that's saying, when Odysseus broke into tears. And Odysseus he, breaks yeah. into tears. And yeah. but who's there listening to it? Well, other wealthy people, other aspodaios, yeah. all the kings and princes that are assembled. And, hey, sing for your supper. Man, yeah. man has to make a living. Yeah, and and he's 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 in fact booking his next engagements. Yeah, way. and you know what? This this of course was almost pre-literate, uh, oh, pre-writing. Was, was pre-literate. Uh, uh, now, now, but 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 apparently Homer once uh, bemoaned writing because he thought it would destroy memory. Well, I think that's probably possibly apocryphal. Is that because, apocryphal? Yeah, because the story is is about the years probably um, around eleven fifty. Yeah, uh, BC. The um, Odyssey was first performed around, and the Iliad as well, around 750 BC. Right. It's not going to be written down until 350 BC. But I think the point is still valid. I think the point is still valid. The whole point is it's it's memory. It's memory. Now, yeah. here's what memory does. And Bernard Knox, in his introduction to the Robert Fagel's translation of the Iliad, which I highly recommend. Um, says that the sign that this was in fact transferred, or the, the, the signifier that this was trans, that the Iliad was transferred as an oral poem, comes from the fact that the armor, the, the materials for the armor, keep changing. In one scene they're boar tusks, in another scene they're steel, in another scene they're bronze. Oh, and he right. says the armor keeps changing, and in fact the Trojan War, the actual Trojan War, was all fought in people wearing bones and boar tusks and so forth. It was very much an early Bronze Age thing, and only the tips of the spears were bronze, and the arrowheads were tips of the arrows were bronze. Wow. So, um, so these singers kept this memory alive orally. And what they would do, it's kind of like a rap artist performing, <clears throat> almost free fall. If you ever see a rap artist performing. They're riffing. And they're riffing. Yeah. Or, yeah. in fact, even like a, a dub poet. Yeah. What they're doing is they're looking around the room and as they're singing, they've got the pattern, they've got the rhythm, they know the story. They've yeah. just got to find the right words. And they look around the room and they see a pile of spears in the corner and they're made yeah. of steel. So they talk about cold steel. Yeah. And they're reading the people, too. They're reading their yeah. audience. And they're speaking to them. They're, they're, yeah. they're trying to con find the context in which they'll That's understand the old stand-up comedian joke, yeah. tough room. Yeah. yeah, and what they're doing is they're, they're playing to their audience. And, and another theme emerges that emerge, and it's a very strong theme, emerges in the Aeneid as well, and that is, you've mentioned it, the Nacusis, the trip to the underworld. Yeah, that's and, book uh, 11. And Odysseus. Odysseus takes that, where he meets Tiresias. It's book six of the, of the yep. Aeneid. And the Aeneid it's, as well. It's uh, essentially, um, you know, the, the whole divine comedy is in Nacusis, uh, or at least the um, the, the, the um, inferno uh, of the uh, Commedia Divina is in Nacusis, and you come up on the other side. And you start ascending Mount Purgatory. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the fall of the angel, rebel angels from from heaven yeah. into into Panda, into the fiery lake and yeah. so forth in Book One of, of Paradise Lost is an Acousis Holy Saturday when uh, Christ yeah. goes down into the underworld. The um, harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell. And yeah. there's a wonderful freeze work over the door of the the end, lower entrance to Char, uh, to Saint Chapelle in Paris. Yeah. Of the harrowing of hell, which is absolutely marvelous because hell is like a great big huge Peter Benchley-style shark. See, I, I, I always had trouble with that story. Yeah. What were what were the righteous doing in hell to begin with? Ah, they were born sub-Julio. Yeah. You see, this, you see the, 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 the simple answer is because – this is the way Dante explains yeah. it – because they had inklings of the – 
of the coming of Christ. So they were righteous pagans, but they didn't actually openly believe in 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 Jesus, see, see so, didn't it doesn't take much to wind up in hell, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, I mean, and, but they get fished out, you see, yeah, so yeah, they, they they get brought out, and uh, on Holy Saturday. So, um, and here's the thing: even mm-hmm. even in in Book Eleven of the Odyssey, some of the people in hell are the kind of most interesting people you'd like to meet. Yeah, those, those are people I'd like to sit down and have a drink with. Well, it's what George Bernard Shaw said, he said, you're given the choice of going to heaven yeah. or going to hell. He says, I'd prefer to go to hell because the people are more interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and a number of, of uh, characters in mythology have made that trip. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got you've got uh, Aeneas, you've got Odysseus, Dionysus, fetched Eurydice, Heracles. Yeah, and Heracles, exactly, Heracles exactly. And now, what's interesting? I found a very interesting parallel, and that's when Odysseus mm-hmm. or when um, um, Orpheus went down to get Eurydice. Yeah, he was told not to look back at her. And he does, and he does, and she disappears. Yeah. He loses her. It's sort of a satchel page moment, you know. You know what he reminded me yeah. of Lot's wife. Don't look. Don't back. look back. Don't yes, look, look back. back. Yes, you know. Well, and here's so the, they even there there there's an echo. Here the the point. And this is something Northrop Price said. No um, story exists in a vacuum. That all all stories, all narratives are interconnected. And because they're interconnected, the question is, what's the connection? And the simple yeah. answer is, is there's a thread yeah. running between them all. Yeah. Um, no matter where we, I, I, I was talking to a Vietnamese poet at a harborfront uh, sort of cocktail party before the International Festival one several years ago, and he said, "You know, I've read your book, The Golden Thread," and I saw it. it's great. And he says, "You know, I love the Arthurian romances because Vietnamese literature, Vietnamese culture, and mythology are exactly like the 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 um, like the Arthurian legends." And I said, "Really?" And he says, "Yes, there was a King Quan." of ancient Vietnam who received a sword rising out of a lake that was, in fact, presented to him by uh, a glowing hand. Of course, in, in Arthurian literature, Excalibur is given yeah. to Arthur by the, the the hand that's clothed in Samite and right. so forth. And it's the idea that there's something special is being gifted to the one true leader. Exactly. You know, um, and and only Arthur could withdraw. Only the Arthur other, yeah. could withdraw. You see, um, it, it's it's fascinating because when Tennyson comes along and does Idols of the King, Albert is still alive. You know, and he was kind of perceived as as the kind of the the new Arthur and so forth. And also, to take this trip to the underworld, one needed the golden bough, and yes. it was only given only the chosen one could pluck the bough. Yes, yeah. um, the, the, and that's uh, from the Aeneid, of course. The interesting thing about the golden bough is that the golden bough, there's a number of interpretations of it. One, it's like a ticket of leave. It's like a key that allows you a rite of passage through the underworld. The other thing is it's possibly um, um, uh, 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 mistletoe. And mistletoe is interesting because um, the first time I saw mistletoe growing, I was kind of freaked. Yeah. I was on a, I was a high school student, and we were going from Paris to the Loire, and it was spring, and the leaves weren't quite open yet. But at the tops of all these trees throughout the throughout the French countryside, especially in wooded areas, right, you'd see these great big huge clusters. And I said to the guide, you must have huge squirrels around here, thinking they were squirrels' nest. And he says, what do you mean, squirrels? And I said, no squirrels. And I said, well, what are, the, what, what are those? And he says, well, that's mistletoe. And mistletoe grows on the tops of oaks. 
the mytho mythological reference is that the mistletoe uh, grows atop top oaks that were blasted by lightning. The oak was the plant or the tree of Jove because it was the tallest, sturdiest, and strongest tree. It was, in fact, the um, the, the divine the, the divine symbol of 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 a of a, of a presiding god on earth. Um, it's interesting that when the, you th the sacred oak in yeah. in Fraser's the golden bough, wow. and yeah. it's, it's interesting that trees are all upside down. That they're that the, the top of the tree is actually the roots, and what we're seeing are the leaves, which are theoretically the bottom of the tree. Trees see the world entirely different, uh, according to botanists and so forth. But they're sitting there in the in the leaves on the upper branches. There's a fungal. There's a fungus, which is which is mistletoe, and of course. When you uh, – what you have is at Christmas, when everything's dead, mistletoe turns green and you get these little white berries on it, which are the, like fruit of life and so forth, growing on all of their deadly poison. But the other point is that when you take mistletoe and if it is cut – and the ancient druids used to cut it you know, right. and so forth and harvest it um, for their religious practices. But they, when you c cut it off, it doesn't wither. It actually turns a kind of a golden color. You know, this it's is this is death. teasing my memory. Is there not a Norse god who could be fatally wounded by mistletoe? Um, I can't tell you. I'm yeah, not, I have to look that I'm up because it's somewhere in the back of my mind. Yes. It's teasing yeah. me there. But the, it's yeah. the reason why, for instance, um, during our sort of solstice festival, yeah. a.k.a. Christmas, uh, people hang up mistletoe and they kiss under the mistletoe because it's, in fact, uh, a promissory thing leading up to spring. Mm -hmm. And the you know the, re, the return of life and the regeneration of uh, of all things natural. So if you don't follow through, it's truly a breach of promise, right? It is, yes, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, so well, you know, you know, it's very interesting when you said uh, when you I think you were mentioning Northrop Fry. No, no story exists in a vacuum. Mm. Uh, what, in your opinion, makes Western literature unique? What factors make it unique? I I don't think it's as unique as we would like to think it is. I mean, we tend to have a, a, a almost like a Eurocentric view of our culture and of ourselves. The King Kwong myth from um, uh, Vietnam is an example. If you take a look at, um, say, Aztec mythology, mm -hmm. and I've was, I was spent some time uh, at the Universidad Tecnológica de Linares in, in Mexico, south of Monterrey, and talking to Mexican, you know, uh, you know, cultural th theorists and so forth, um, that Quetzalcoatl's Christ. He, his his life follows exactly the yeah. same sort of pattern. And everything like that. It's not just the fact that 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 you know that you've got uh, you know Christians proselytizing the Aztecs. It's the fact that the Aztecs t heard all this information about. Quetzalcoatl, and they said, yeah, we know that. Yeah. We recognize that. The story of Lou from Celtic mythology. Yeah. The That's why the Spaniards were greeted so favorably. So because they yeah. saw them as Quetzalcoatl, you know, yeah. like the return, the coming. The Celtic god Lou, the craftsman god, who is beloved of the, of the mother goddess. Um, Ludgate Hill in London is named after him. Um, Lou is in Kent. Um, anything that's named uh, like um, Mont Saint-Michel, um, and so for anything that's that's create that's associated with a hill, uh, with a tower atop it, was usually dedicated to Lu, the craftsman god. 
And of course, who was Lou? He's the male principal within the Celtic sort of female sort of uh, uh, maternal matriarchal sort of uh, mythology. And my understanding is that most of the major um, uh, cathedrals in, um, in, in Europe. Europe are built upon ancient pagan sites. Yeah, especially ones dedicated to Lou. St. Paul's is, is Ludgate. Um, the, and there's um, there, and here's the interesting thing. Lou actually becomes interpreted as St. Michael. And if you take a look in Cornwall, there's there's St. Michael's Mount. Right. There's the mate to it in Normandy, Mont Saint-Michel. There's a place in Scotland which ne they never actually built anything on it, but it was dedicated to Lou, and it's called Meaglesegi, and I've actually been there. But there was a whole series of standing stones. But what did the Scots do once they became Christian? They actually changed the stand basically carved the standing stones into Celtic crosses. Um, but if you take a look at all of the major sort of um, uh, you know, Celtic sites. Um, the Earth was was the the Earth Mother, um, the, or the the White Goddess, as Robert Graves calls her. Right. But she was constantly served by a craftsman, a dedicated sort of Daedalus type figure, uh -huh. who in fact knows possesses what Aristotle would call techne, the yeah. know how, and he keeps applying that to solve all her problems and solve all her puzzles and so forth. Because those sites were considered to be sites of spiritual power, yeah. a nexus of spiritual power, yeah. plus the fact that the newly converted Christians feel comfortable in those locales. So it's the, the old temple, it's a church. Yeah. The spirituality was still there in their opinion. Well, here's something. It runs through Middle Eastern mythology. It runs through Celtic mythology. It runs through um, any sort of mythology that has a transfer from, say, um, a, ma a matriarchal perception to a patriarchal perception yeah. is you have a moment where the a, a representative of the sky god armed with a sword comes down to earth and does battle either with the mother goddess, which is what you have at Glastonbury Tor, or right. in, in Glastonbury where you have St. Right. Michael's, a church dedicated to St. Michael atop that was knocked down by an earthquake except for the tower, tower being phallic and so forth. Or you have a situation where the, the, the you actually have a battle between the Sky Father and the Earth Mother, which is what you get in uh, – and Milton references this in his poem, Ode on the Morning of Christ's Nativity, where you have the ancient uh, Eastern god uh, Tiamat, who is the Earth Mother and so Yes, forth. yes. And um, she has to be defeated and so forth. So uh, you'll find that the whole process of proselytization is a kind of a sky conquest of Earth principles and so forth. Now, if you take a look at what are the holy— Which, which once again, can be framed as rationality versus yeah. Uh, yeah. sensation yeah. or but emotion. If, if you take a look, for instance, at numeral symbolism, this is kind of like the little get giveaway here. Numeral symbolism um, in Christianity, one is singularity, two is duality. You don't want duality and so forth such as the Twin Towers in New York and so forth that Isaiah talks about. Um, but then you've got the number three. Well, that's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three is the sky number. Four is an earth number where you have four directions. Three is the, three is the sky, sky, number, number. sky number. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, the Trinity and so forth. Um, th four is, in fact, the earth number. That's the number for the four, four seasons, the four directions and so forth. Um, you know, the, the, even the gospelers, the, you've got four gospelers, you know, they're spreading the message on earth and so forth. You've got the four rivers of... of, of uh, What's five? 
Five is, in fact, the um, old naturalistic mother goddess number. Okay. You see, that's why you have pentangles and so forth. And when you're talking about, and you know, people who are into Wicca and so forth, they always walk around with pentangles because it's, uh, in fact, two, it's duality plus, in fact, a kind of and uh, duality plus the sky principle. And in that, you've got good and evil. Yeah. So, but the magic number, this is the number which we operate on, is the number seven. What is it? It's the intersection of heaven and earth. And, of course, three times four. You've got four rivers, by the way, in, in, in Eden. You know, the yeah. Gion, the Pison, the Hittical, and the Euphrates. You've got the four rivers of hell, you know, mm -hmm. uh, depending on whether the, it's the Phlegathon or the Cocytus, you know, depending on whether you read Dante or Milton. You've got four rivers in hell. But three plus four is the is the number seven, which mm. is uh, is the number of days in the week. It's the number for time. But then you take three times four and multiply mm. three times four, and what do you get? You get the disciples, and you get this number of months in a year, and you've got um, um, you know the signs of the zodiac, and you know it's 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 a heaven. <laughs> Very interesting. It, it, it's yeah. numerology, which is kind of the giveaway for. Essentially, how do you interpret, um, you know, um, uh, mythologies and how do you look at mythologies? Well, a friend of mine who is an indigenous writer, she gave me a little sort of conical tri uh, yeah. triangle, a little cone and so forth. Right. But she painted it as the four um, directions, the four elements. And, of course, what four elements are, they're fire and water. They're associated with the four seasons. They're associated with all the things of the earth and so forth. Let's talk masks, personae. Oh, yeah, persona, yeah. In Greek theater, the actors would wear masks. Yes. Many truths can be uttered from behind a mask. Mm. So let's talk about the symbology of masks and, and how they're used to this day. What immediately came to mind is the movie that won Best Picture, Joker. Uh, Joker. Par I thought Parasite. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. It's it's par Parasite, but, yeah. uh, but Best yeah. Actor. Yeah, was... I, haven't, I haven't seen Joker, actually, yet. Well, that, his makeup is yeah. a mask. Yes. The, the, the idea of a mask, I mean, uh, in Greek theater, you didn't perform a character. You didn't act a character. Uh, William Shatner would have been an absurdity, you yeah. know, emoting a character. Yeah. Um, but what you had was you would have the, the character presented in a stylized version so that the t lead character was on stilts, mm -hmm. on, like on, on platform right. shoes. But the mask would be frozen in, in fact, one sort of you know, type of reaction. So you have the mask of tragedy and you have the mask of comedy, which you still get. Um, even the Three Stooges, for example, when they roll their credits, have the yeah. mask of tragedy and comedy uh, on their credits. If you ever take a look at Three Stooges shorts. The whole point is when uh, someone performed a play, they would have to put on a mask or a persona. Uh, Sophocles was the first one in the Greek, first playwright in the Greek theater not to wear a mask and not to perform his lead character because he had asthma mm. and he, his voice wasn't able to project. Through the mask. Through yeah. the mask. Because yeah. uh, he'd be speaking to 10,000 people in an amphitheater. Yeah. He could simply not make his voice carry. But the whole point behind the mask is that if you were the playwright you would have to perform the role of the lead character. And the lead character in a Greek play, uh, because the plays were all placed in competition uh, to see who was the, which one was going to be the best play of the year, kind of like the Academy right. Awards, the first, uh, the, or the, 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 the playwright would be 
the first competitor, or proto, meaning first, and the competitor, the word is agonistes, mm. from which we get the word agony. And if you put proto and agonistes together, you get protagonist, which mm. is the lead character. Um, the donning of a mask means that, uh, in fact, you you basically suppress your own identity in order to project the identity of it the character. It conveys anonymity. It, it, anonymity. And the interesting thing is when you get to um, Italian theater, <clears throat> late Renaissance, late medieval, early Renaissance theater, something comes up, springs up out of the streets of Venice mm-hmm. in Carnivale, um, as in the very early stages of, of Carnivale in Venice and so yeah. on. And it takes hold all over Italy, and that's Commedia dell'arte. And in Commedia dell'arte, you have stock characters, but all the characters are represented by masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Zani, or the 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 trickster character, the one who is in fact doing the the the, the not just mischief because yeah. that's often ascribed to Arlecchino and so yeah. on, but the one who's actually doing evil has a long bill-necked or yeah. beak-like structure on the front, which is modeled on the plague doctor masks yeah. that were worn in Venice. Um, you've got uh, Il Capitano, uh, Il Brigantino, uh, or you've got um, the Scaramouche character who is kind of like the dashing male character. Yeah. You've got Columbina, who is, in fact, the, the soprano or the, 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 the female love interest and so forth. You've got Il Doctore. Um, who is someone who is a quack medicine, medic yeah. and so forth, and Il Professore, who is um, uh, like a, um, a, 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 a fake academic. And then you have uh, people such as uh, Pantalone, which is an old man. Right. I've got a collection of all these masks in well, my study see, at home. I was thinking and, in terms uh, of the freedom it gives one who wears it. Well, you now, much, the, much you, like the fool in Lear, yeah. a fool can say anything well, because he's a fool. I'm glad you right? mentioned that Yeah, because... Because the idea that Shakespeare evolves in, and it comes up in, in As You Like It with, with yeah. Fest and it comes up in um, uh, in the mechanicals and so forth, the, the Phallos in A Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream and it comes up in Lear and it comes up in Twelfth Night. It's the idea of the clown. And what is a clown? Well, a clown is a fool. And what is a fool? A fool is not just simply someone who is speaking nonsense. A fool is someone who is speaking wisdom that is disguised as humor or disguised as, in fact, you know, Otherwise, the truth the would joke. hurt too much. The joke. Well, it's, it's what Freud says, you know, the truth yeah. is told in jokes. Yeah. You know. And what you see in, in, in Shakespeare's plays, Shakespeare, I'm pretty sure, must have gone to Italy. Mm-hmm. There, there was, there's, a, there's a couple, there's about a year or two when he could have been there after he was a tutor at a great house in Lancashire. Yeah. When he was a young man and read the way through the family's library. Um, that the idea is that he has seen Commedia dell'arte performed in the street. It's Leon Cavallo's opera Pagliacci. And, of course, the last line of Pagliacci, um, when, in fact, Netta is dead. Sorry, yeah. spoiler alert. But when Netta is, <laughs> when Netta is dead and she's struck dead, yeah. um, and uh, the, the guy, who, the, the character who kills her, sings this incredibly sad song about putting on the grease paint and assuming the character, yes. Vesta Lugubia. Yes. You know, so the last line of Pagliacci, or the clowns, is La Commedia e Fanito. Comedy is over. The comedy is over. And what is the comedy? Well, the comedy is life. In order to essentially live life, a person has to assume masks. Yes. Well, that was the the point I was making. We all wear a mask at some point. And the question is, why do we wear masks? Because um, 
we are who we are, but we're also who we believe we are. Um, in one of the, I did a book of interviews with Canadian authors, a book called Lives and Works, and in the front of it, I wrote an introduction. Um, and in the introduction, I explained that when we sat down with authors and we were interviewing Canadian poets, and, you mm. know, Canadian novelists and so forth, um, they were entirely different when the tape recorder went off. Oh, yeah. And when the, the, when the ta tape recorder was on, they had suddenly donned a mask. And I thought, why is this happening? It, it's the line from uh, Robbie Burns' poem, yeah. To a Louse on a Lady's Bonnet. Oh, would we all God's gift to gee us to see ourselves as others see us? And it's the idea that we have there's there's self perception of of uh, of who we want to be and the self perception of who we are. Very few people venture into the self perception of who we really are. Yeah, I, I used to teach uh, business writing, and mm. people freeze up as soon as the the words hit the page. Mm. They become stiff. They yeah. become unnatural. And I'd say read read it aloud. Would you actually pick up a phone and talk to somebody that yeah. way? I, mean, I cover yeah. up my students' papers when they've yeah. given me gibberish and yeah. they're trying to sound, quote, good. And I say, what were you trying to say? And then they come right out and say it. Yeah. And, and I say, listen, yeah. no one's going to look at your first draft. Yeah. It can be crap. Just I mean, get it on the page. Well, th this is what happened with the Golden Thread. Um, I had done about 11 drafts of the chapter in night school. And the, 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 I remember each one getting handed back to me. Iris Tupham, my who was the publisher at HarperCollins, yeah. said, look at it from the other side of the desk. He says, you're writing like an academic. I had to literally invent my own way of saying this book. You had to find your voice. You find voice. Now, the interesting thing is, this is a little giveaway. Mm -hmm. If you read Ulysses by James Joyce, in every chapter, he uses a different uh, mode of rhetoric or a different form of, yeah. of narrative structure and narrative expression. And the rhythm changes. And the language changes. Well, you have to learn to read yeah. again with every chapter. And it's a, it's a frustrating thing. It's why it takes, you know... Ten years, ten he years said. To read. took me ten years yeah. to write right. it. Should... It take, takes you ten years to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's true because you have to keep learning how to read. Um, what I think masks d should do is they should, in fact, make us more aware not of who, what, what we're just what we're projecting, but what's mm -hmm. underneath the mask. Um, that the but people don't bother to do that. They yeah. they they hide behind the, the they hide behind the, the projections of themselves. They can't take the mask off. They can't take the mask off. But what it's what's behind the mask. And yeah. of course, what does psychology do? <laughs> well, it it asks you to take off the mask and look behind it. Which segues very nicely yeah. into Freud. Yes. Okay. Civilization yes. is discontents. Yeah. I believe you said that art, literature, culture protect the human species from barbarism. That's Freud's no, point. Yeah. This is our uh, our. It's, our, a, it's our the superego, yeah. Which is a kind of a mask, is it not? It's it's pointing out something, and it's it's kind of a distraction. If you've ever had kids who were yeah. ADD, yeah, uh, you constantly you know um, they distract themselves. Actually, mm -hmm. you know the old joke about. A child with ADD. This is um, 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 how many uh, kids with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> hey, a puppy. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's um, it, it's it's a form of of group focus that takes us out of ourselves. It's the suspension of disbelief when we go to a play. It's when and we catharsis go, and when, and, yeah. and when we yeah. go to say a concert, a symphony concert, we're not standing up and singing along with it. Uh, I was once very embarrassed uh, on a date because we got I got 
um, seats for a Sibelius symphony at Roy Thompson Hall. And the only seat that I had was the one at the back above the stage, looking down on the orchestra. I've been there. And <laughs> the, the woman I was with, it was only one date, and because uh, I, I said never again. Um, but she insisted on talking all the way through it. And, of course, she didn't realize that everything she said was being heard at the back of the theater because of the lovely acoustics in Roy Thompson Hall. She she could not understand that her she her position that she was not in fact hidden behind the, the magic curtain between the audience and the and the production uh what we'd like to call the fourth wall as it were some people the fourth wall is invisible if you if you really want to make someone annoyed take them to a play where they have to participate in the play mm-hmm. uh where well, mouse trap or something like that where yeah. you suddenly some you're dinner theater yeah thing, and yeah. you're suddenly involved the whole point is um, in civilization discontents, all the things that form the superego take us out of ourselves and they help us to forget ourselves. But the other side of the coin is that in forgetting ourselves, we remember ourselves. Now, this is key because one of the things that is that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, which is so important, and it's written on the Siege Perilous in um, the Arthurian legends, the, the chair that the one true knight can sit in. Mm-hmm. If I save myself, I lose myself. And if I lose myself, I save myself. The superego does that. It's our salvation. Um, what, in fact, is driving the world right now to the edge of barbarism is is not just money and you know and, and greed and so forth or even you know uh, epidemics what's driving us to the edge of barbarism right now is the fact that we're not educating ourselves in training our superegos ethno-nationalism yeah. is making a huge well, comeback comparable to the 30s yeah and it, it it's it's the cutting of edu- uh, cutting of funding for for arts my friend Dana Joya uh, was the chairman for the National Endowment for the Arts during the um, uh, the Bush George W. Bush administration for the eight years, and the only branch of U.S. government that did not have its funding cut was the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. Why? Because Joya basically sat down and said, "Look, if you want to maintain." Um, social order, if you want to maintain, you know, sort of the superego. Bread and circuses. Not just bread and circuses. <laughs> it was like it, 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 it's, it's symphonies and, and, and poetry workshop. Why? Because those things um, hone our memories, that they, they keep us in tune with, with, with life, with reality, uh, with our past and so forth. I find that my, a lot of my students are suffering from what I call the information gap, that they have no idea that what happened um, in terms of, 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 the, of the long-term memory that so many people have. Like, I've got a 91-year-old mother yeah. right now. I, I was raised by grandparents who were born in the 1880s. My grandmother um, grew up knowing men who fought in the Civil War. Yeah, and yeah. my dad's father was born yeah. in 1865. Yeah. Um, and grew up in Missouri, yeah. and remembered bushwhackers coming yeah. through the farm. He, uh, my family, would sit down at the aunts and uncles and things. We'd all sit down at the Sunday dinner table, and their memory went back into the 18th century. Yeah. They could quote things family members had said in imitations of their voices from the 18th century. Yeah. There's a sense of longevity, of of, of mentality, which has gone missing. Um, and my mother, you know, lived through the Second World War and the Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I, three years old, I watched um, the, the first space shot. 
I was at home suffering from chickenpox the day Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. I watched his funeral and everything. I, I saw the men land on the moon. Um, there's a sense that that, of, that if you bear witness or if you know of, of people who have borne witness, you are a participant in the events. Yes, yeah, the old Santayana quote. Yeah, you know, which is which is uh, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat yeah. it. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, you know, uh, it's quite true. And yeah. of course, um, the sad thing about Santayana was that he thought he was Napoleon. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, we all have our delusions. <laughs> but the whole point is, I, I get frustrated with my students because their sense of of temporal consciousness is very, very limited, and um, it's one of the, 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 the it, it's the weak point in our society now. It's not the fact that, that you've got a left wing or a right wing and so forth. Mm. Yeah, it's the fact that the wings are sprouting up because people aren't, in fact, um, haven't seen the ramifications. See the, you see the, power, the power of the narrative. Yeah. You quote William Blake saying, if I don't create a system, I... Must uh, may be imprisoned by another man's. Be imprisoned by another man's system. Yeah. So if we drop the narrative, mm. somebody else will fill the vacuum with their narrative. Yeah, and that's now, where you get fake news. When we drop the thread, yeah. what can be done with that? You've heard of Edward Bernays. He was mm. Sigmund Freud's nephew. Mm. He was the, considered the father of public relations. Mm. He wrote... Two very influential books, Crystallizing Public Opinion and Propaganda in the 20s. He was the one who got women to smoke because he tied it. He called cigarettes torches of freedom. He tied those cigarettes to feminism. Why should only men be allowed to smoke? The guy was a genius. One would argue perhaps an evil genius, but he filled a vacuum in the narrative. And that's what can happen. Yeah. I mean, if if, if what we... What we don't see can kill us. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and uh, yeah. the id, the superego, mm. the ego. Sigmund Freud had one very, very influential uh, figure mm. who helped shape his theories. And that was uh, Charles Grodick. Mm. He wrote a book called The Book of the It, where he says, okay, we are not li- we do not live so much as we are lived mm. by unconscious forces. He is the one who coined the term id, which Freud took from him. Now, their disagreement was Freud thought that the id and the ego were two separate constructs, mm. whereas Grodick thought that the ego was the mask of the id. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Very well, interesting. as I say yeah. in The Golden Thread, essentially, what is the purpose of literature? And essentially, we are writing ourselves into existence. When we stop participating in the conversation of Western <sighs> literature, yeah. we, we're not existing anymore. We're, in fact, resigning ourselves to, um, in fact, uh, what Freud calls the, the thanatic impulse, the impulse towards death rather than the impulse towards eros and life. So... Uh, and I always think it think it's interesting. Something I found out after the fact. Um, Walt Whitman, of course, uh, had a younger brother who uh, was uh, mentally, you know, intellectually and mentally challenged. And all of the um, doctors in the U.S. wanted to put his brother into um, leather straitjackets that would tighten around him and so forth as they dried and. Uh, do terrible tortures to him and so forth. And Whitman said, no, I can't have this. Well, he found out that there was a doctor in London, Ontario, by the name of Dr. John Buck. And he went to London, Ontario, 
uh, to the London Psychiatric Institution, and Dr. Buck decided that he was going to tear down the walls of the psychiatric hospital. And he actually, with Whitman, they prescribed the humane treatment for mental illness and for mental deficiency. That is fascinating. And they wrote a book together. And what was the, and was the, the book, title uh, of the The title book? was, I believe it was on the treatment of the mentally deficient, on the humane treatment of the mentally deficient by John Buck and W. Whitman. And here's the little kicker in all this. Whitman is, you know, a great humane character. I sing the body electric, and right. leaves of grass. You Song know, of myself. Song of myself. And, right. and who should get a copy of the book and find it? In 1880 in Vienna, and it's Sigmund Freud. And what Buck was prescribing was, in fact, sitting down and talking to the mentally, uh, to, talking to people who are suffering from mental illness and so forth. Um, during World War One, um, the German treatment for neurasthenia, for shell shock, mm -hmm. was, in fact, electroshock therapy, just blasted out of their heads. There was a doctor who was not a medical doctor. Well, he was a medical doctor, but he was by trade an anthropologist. And he did all the work in Indonesia that became the, the sociological platform work for Margaret Mead when she wrote about the coming of age in Samoa. And this man's name was W.H.R. Rivers. And he's a character in Pat Barker's novel, um, Regeneration, mm. which is about the relationship between Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, the two World War I poets. And... Rivers said, look, and, and by the way, Rivers also treated Frank Pruitt, the Canadian poet whose work I went and searched for uh, in Texas when I was, when we were earlier on, I mentioned David Wevel yeah. and so forth. And um, when I was uh, researching Pruitt, I suddenly realized he and he and Robert Graves and Edmund Blunden and Siegfried Sassoon had all been treated for shell shock by W.H.R. Rivers. At, and Rivers was in charge of three hospitals in the border regions of of Scotland. Um, one was Craig Lockhart, mm -hmm. where Sassoon and Owen met and so forth. And the other one was a place called Lennell's. What, in fact, um, Rivers asked his patients to do was to try to def um, basically externalize their neurasthenia, their shell shock, their internal horrors by creating art. And he said, write as therapy, write your, 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 your terrors out and so forth. So that Essentially, writing in literature, as I think it was recognized by Rivers and it was recognized by Whitman and, Whit and Freud and mm. Buck and everything, is that the, the telling of stories, mm -hmm. even, even if they're not, even if it's not written down, but the telling of stories, the creation of narrative, um, whether it has a mask involved in it or not, is essentially a framework for self-perception mm -hmm. that um, we all want to believe that our own narratives will go on forever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the whole idea that we don't, you know, it's why people, you know, Baba Yar and so forth, went to their executions laughing hysterically. It's the idea that, that the reality uh, that their narrative was about to end could not be processed and mm -hmm. so forth. We all want to think that our narrative is continuous. Um, and, of course, if you take a look at the earliest uh, section, literally his books of St. Augustine's Confessions. He has a narrative before he has words. His uh, consciousness of life and so forth, his own story predates language. So we're 
what is, in fact, at the root of the golden thread and what is the thread made of. And I like the fact that you say it's it's a worldwide thread. It's not necessarily Western. And and it's not. We keep telling the same stories over and over again, Um, parallel stories. This is why, for instance, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the the flood uh, in the Sumerian epic, is almost identical to the flood that you get in uh, the book in Genesis um, 7 and 8. Well, I mentioned ethno-nationalism before and why I'm so troubled about it and the parallel with the 30s. Mm-hmm. And the rise in anti-Semitism has been very startling. Mm-hmm. Many years ago, I mean, I was like 14, 15, I read a, a book called Sigmund Freud and the Jewish Mystical Tradition mm-hmm. uh, by David Bakan, uh, mm-hmm. who actually was professor emeritus at York. And Freud believed that Anti-Semitism in Europe was the result of the Jew having laid the yoke of the law onto the pagans. Mm. And it was an unconscious resentment of Christianity, uh, which I thought was a fascinating take. And also, Bacon mentions how much he considered that Freud drew on uh, the Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 well, as you said, the Jewish mystical tradition. Yeah. So I wanted to find that book to reread it, right? Yeah. Once again, if the mask sometimes is torn off, the person behind the mask or the civilization behind the mask shatters. Well, we're not – and I get this from my students. I see this being as a, as a failure in their educations and I purposely try to get them to, to stop. You see, the, 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 under modern, the recent undergraduate English essay is where you take a pile of shovel full of this information and you move it over here. That's not thinking. Yeah. I won't let them use secondary sources. I want them to confront the text. Why? Because when you are answering a text, you are creating a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Why is the dialogue important? Yeah. The dialogue is important between you and the text because it reinforces your ability to tell your own story. What is the purpose of the story? If, as long as we tell our own stories, we're free. Then it's a conversation between you and the author. Yes. And yeah. it, it, it's what enables us not just to simply live through our times, but to question our times, to sort of make something of our times, to reinvent uh, our own things. What, what, what we're getting right now is, is, is somebody saying, you don't have a story. We'll give you a little red hat. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and that's, there, there is no other story other than what is printed on the front of that little red hat, that little red baseball cap. Um, It's the idea that somehow we're not exercising our ability to tell ourselves stories. Our sense of individualism, our sense of freedom, our sense of social responsibility um, comes from our ability to tell our stories, to listen to other people's stories, to share our stories. Um, I would like to see people sitting down, having dinner together, mm-hmm. and just talking and just sharing stories. Um, that's how you, in fact, protect what is worth protecting the virtues of our society. Um, we, what we're losing right now in terms of, of, uh, of our own civilization is narrative, a simple narrative. I, I've asked my students to write me a story about a trip they went on. And everybody's been on a trip. And these are students who can barely speak English, that they're brand new ESL students that arrived in Canada. But even if the story is broken, they still struggle to tell their story. And they suddenly realize, oh, 
maybe I've got something valid to say. Maybe yeah. my voice can be heard. And I can, but above all, maybe I can hear my own voice. Yeah. And that's the that's the, the what you hear uh, in in W. B. Yeats's poem, "The Lake Isle of It Is Free." Yeah. You know, I will arise and offer always night and day. I hear lake waters lapping with low sounds by yeah. the shore as I stand upon the roadway or on the pavements gray. I hear it in the deep heart's core. And that's the that's what we have to listen for. So where are we now in terms of the thread? Have we dropped the thread? We're not weaving more of it. In fact, um, uh, I mean, this is why I love Toni Morrison, because jazz uh, is an important... And, of course, jazz is is a commentary on Faulkner, and Faulkner's a commentary on Milton, and Milton's a commentary on Dante. Um, If you read jazz by Toni Morrison... Um, you can see what she's doing. She's actually taken the whole idea of what jazz is. What What is jazz? Well, it's a group of instruments conversing with each other, telling their own stories. Uh, it's gossip, jazzé, you know, mm. the, the Creole word for, to, for gossiping and so forth. Yeah. On the it was the two night. It was the night after the Young Street riot that took place, and um, my wife and I went down to Harborfront to see Toni Morrison. And it was – you could have cut the tension in the room with a knife because half the audience was, was white and half the audience was black. And there was this incredible um, tension in the room. And it was just like nobody would talk to anybody. And Toni Morrison stood up and she said, now I'm going to read to you from jazz. And she read mm-hmm. the portion about the city. And it was magical. Her voice was lyrical. It was haunting beautiful, but she talked about the city and all the voices in the city coming together to form a melody. And I don't, when she finished, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house and everybody leapt to their, there was a moment of silence, like stunned silence, and everybody leapt to their feet and everybody started hugging each other, black people, white people, everybody in the room was hugging and there was, there were no more differences. There was, there was no more tension um, that's what literature does, is it actually it, it brings us together, n- not so much just as a, as a superego thing. It brings us together to, to hear each other, yeah. to understand each other. Right. And I, that's what I saw in that room that night when Tony Morrison read. How many students in university are reading The Odyssey, reading Virgil, reading Petrarch? Mm, I have no idea. It, it's almost like are a, there are there it's almost the classics like a, programs. It, it's almost like exist. a lo- it's almost like a lost art. Really? It's um yeah. Uh, uh, I just came from a meeting where we were talking about the creative industries or the creative uh, enterprises program at Victoria College, and and um I think the assertion was that. That you know, and there were writers sitting around the table, David Gilmore and Al Moritz and so forth, and we were all John Bemrose, and we were all there. And our assertion as writers was that you can't just teach students to write; you have to teach them to write out of their own context, mm-hmm. um, and that they have to learn something as well. You just can't simply, you're not just simply turning out words. You're basically learning how to cope with your own information and how to manage your own information and how to make it effective. Um, in terms of who's reading the Odyssey, I couldn't tell you. Um, I used to teach a course uh, for Laurentian and Barry before that program went up yeah. and sure went kaput um, uh, on the, the great books. 
And uh, I saw that my, my students suddenly, if they read the, the great books, you know, like the, the ones that are in the golden thread, um, they suddenly understood Shakespeare. If they understood Shakespeare, they suddenly understood yeah, contemporary absolutely. fiction and so forth. Oh, that's where he got it. Yeah. That's where he got yeah. it. Nothing right? is new. You yeah. See. But what is new? And this is important. Yeah. This is what the students are missing. And this is essentially the creativity that we were all talking about today, why it's so essential. What they're missing is not simply just the, the, the fabric of the material, the, 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 the stories that, that, they're, that they're encountering. It's the way they tell them in their own context. Mm. We're losing our ability to relate the past to the future. Yeah, and uh, that's dangerous. It's that moment yeah. in, in, in Book 6 of the Aeneid when Aeneas and his father Anchises enter Elysium, and there's a valley, and there's a, there's a green valley, and Aeneas looks over and says, I see all the people on this side of this hill, and those are all my ancestors. And he says, yes, says Anchises. Well, who are the people on the other side of the valley? And Anchises says, those are your descendants. Those are the people uh -huh. who aren't born yet. We don't stand at the front of time. This is what the Romans said. We stand in the middle of time. We're yeah. responsible to both the past and the future. And the way in which we are responsible to the past and the future is by being creative. Yeah. If you take a list, take a look at the list of things, you know, how, how do you get to Elysium? Yeah. Well, you know, you, you're a you're, you're person who's loyal to your, your country, your beliefs or whatever. Yeah. There, there are people who are kind. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people who have invented great things, been creative and yeah. so forth. There are people who uh, do good deeds to others and so forth and help them out. And the, the, there are people who are trying to explain things to us. And yeah. that, that The teachers, the priests and right. so forth. Um, you know, all these people who are actively engaged in in the application and the, the, the creation and the determination of narrative. These are all the people that get to go to heaven, and uh, it, that are at least in the in in yeah. Aeneid. And in the middle of you're standing in the middle of the time, your duty is to do those things to make sure that the past and the future. Are so these stories are important, not just who told them. Yeah. As of 2010, mm. no major North American university, at least in the states, no no major university in the states had a required uh, course in Western civil civilization. Only yeah. 16 even offered such a course. Yeah. It's, I think it's not fashionable. Yeah, well, the word is relevant. And the question is, how do you define relevancy? Um, the group of us around the table today define relevancy as, as applied creativity, but yeah. informed creativity. And it was like, uh, I remember at the, at the end of the meeting, David Gilmore was high-fiving me and John, he was high-fiving John Bemrose. We had made a point to the review panel that this is what writing is, creative writing is, this is what makes literature. Um, they, they, uh, I said, look, uh, several years ago, I was asked, uh, I was out for dinner with Austin Clark at um, The Novelist at Massey College, and someone who was a fellow at Massey who wasn't in writing or literature said, well, creative writing, what, what's the difference between that and English literature? And I said, it's very, very simple. I said, um, it's the difference between being a horticulturalist and a florist. I said, one grows the flowers and the other one arranges them. And I said, if we're only arranging them, we're not creating any flowers. An excellent metaphor and no doubt an excellent way to wrap up our discussion. 
Thank you very much, Bruce. It has indeed been a pleasure. Thank you. That was part two and the conclusion of our conversation with Bruce Meyer, author of the national bestseller, The Golden Thread, A Reader's Journey Through the Great Books. We wish to thank Bruce for sitting down with us and so generously sharing his time, insights, and knowledge. We also wish to thank CNIB for the use of their studios. Many thanks as well to CNIB Literacy Lead Karen Brophy, and of course to our talented audio technician Joseph Bernard. For CNIB's Unbound, I'm James Denoss. Thank you for listening. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.